Welcome to a holiday episode of No Challenges Remaining. It's a few days after Christmas, and we are full of eggnog and happy to be talking to you again. Aren't we, Courtney Nguyen? Absolutely. Full of eggnog and cheer and, you know, just the Christmas spirit. What can Did I say? Did you get any exciting things from Tennis Santa? From Tennis Santa? Not really. Not really. Um... You know, I'm just, uh, I don't know. I, I guess the gift was just having a very nice and quiet and chill Christmas. And uh, which is a little bit different because in the last couple of years, I've always been like stressed out about the new tennis season starting mm-hmm. relatively soon. And then usually I was, and I was also getting ready to fly down to Australia and like whatever. Um, and this year I'm not like flying down. So it's actually knowing that I'm not going to have to board a plane for a while or live out of a suitcase for a while has been quite calming in in and has allowed me to actually relax, that which is, is good. Nice. It's the greatest gift yes. of all, or at least it's a good gift. It's in the top five gifts. It is. It is. No, it, no complaints for me. It's it's kind of what I needed and what I wanted after the year. So it was just to have kind of extended time to just chill out. So I've definitely been able to get that. So Very I'm happy. Right. How about but, you, Ben? Yeah, it's good. I mean, it was nothing. I guess too. I got I got a U.S. Open towel with my one Christmas gift, which I actually asked for because I forgot to get one when I was there. <laughs> I started feeling like I should get a towel from each slam that I'm at. Mm-hmm. Sort of be, you know, commemorative souvenir type things. I haven't really ever, I never go to merch shops or anything when I'm at tournaments, which I know you do sometimes. I do. <laughs> but I never have really done that. So we got like, all media was like given a towel in Australia. So I had one from there already. But I was like, I saw my Australia towel and was like, I should get one for US Open too. So. I know a lot of players collect towels, but it's harder for me because they actually do not pass out towels to media. There aren't, like, attending ball kids <laughs> waiting by your desk, like, ready for you to get sweaty. No kidding. Um, which should be nice. I mean, there's probably our sweaty writers out there who could use that, I and, guess. I mean, we're just lucky if we can find a cold bottle of water. Yeah. Let alone being able to, if you need to wipe your sweat, there's, you know, go into the bathroom and, you know, the funny thing about that, though, is that like a lot of, this is a total tangent, but like a lot of the bathrooms at tournaments, especially like in, I think Europe in particular, and maybe Aussie, they don't have paper towels. Like they just have like the the blowers. That's not okay. Which when you actually do just need a paper towel, like you can't find is really frustrating. I know that, not this is exactly related, but I know the bathrooms in the media room in Australia have showers in them. They do. Which I never entirely understood, but I suppose it's nice if you happen to be a homeless traveling tennis writer. Or even if you're like one of the photographers. I mean, I just think, I think the Aussie gig for the, for the photographers is just brutal. It's just so hot and muggy and there's very little, you're just right there directly. There's no shade. I guess the U.S. Open is like that as well. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. I actually have seen, there are some tournaments that have things labeled photographer's locker room Mm -hmm. that I've seen. So maybe they, maybe those do have facilities. But us, uh, us keyboard monkeys are not usually given such amenities. Yeah. You break a sweat for a little bit and then you run back inside, you chill out in the air, lovely air conditioning of the Aussie open media room and then Which, back outside again. By the way, the Aussie media room has unlimited lemon soda, which is a huge lift. Plot. Oh, I'm going to miss the lift. 
Yeah. Oh, that lift is so good. It's literally the best lemon soda on the face of the earth. It's I feel so like good. That, I feel like that mention of that soda now has you like checking flight prices quickly. It really, really, really does. There's been a couple of little moments where I've been like really tempted to like just be like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to go. And then, and that was me. The lift moment. I think there was a dumpling moment a few weeks ago. Oh, dumplings. I was like, I'm not going to be able to get my dumplings. Um, that was a super major bummer. Yeah. All of it. I, I love covering the Aussie. It's just it's just too expensive. It just I can't justify it financially to do. It is tough. It's by far the priciest. Not just getting there, which is a big part of it, but also being there. Australians yeah. do not understand how pricing should work. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. They're like trying to be Scandinavian or something. It's just it's just not cheap. And I mean, for uh, just to give a bit of context as to, to why it, do, it doesn't become worth it, because with the time difference... Like, for example, I think both Ben and I work on East Coast time, East Coast Standard Time. Mm -hmm. So, like, with the time difference from Australia, a lot of times when we're working in Melbourne, the office is kind of closed, you know, back home. So, something, if there's breaking news, uh, it's probably a bit different for you, Ben, but I know for me, if there's breaking news between the hours of, like, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. East Coast time, I'm kind of screwed because I can't get it up. I can't get it posted because um, there's no editors on site or that are up. And so it just becomes like this weird thing of like you're working, but you can't post anything. And then by the time the office is up and running and ready to get to your stuff, a lot of it's no longer timely. And so it just doesn't, you know, and then on top of that, like I need to be awake when my editors are editing my stuff, which means that like I never sleep because that's usually between the hours of midnight and 5 a.m. Melbourne time. Right. So it just ends up being like you don't – I don't – for me personally, I just don't end up getting enough content to, um, that works to justify a $5,000 outlay. <laughs> it's definitely hard. It's definitely it's... tough. But, you know, I'll try to make it work. Yeah, the, edit- the editor's thing, editor's being asleep is tricky. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Worst case scenario, you know, I get to go to the Australian Open. Exactly. That's the thing is like I, I kept thinking about all of the – crunching all the numbers and then at the other – on the other end of the scale was like, but you'd be in Melbourne, a city that you love. All your friends are there. It's the first time of the year. Like, you know, I'm not going to be able to like kind of see players or tour people until Indian Wells run- rolls around, which will be in March. So, you know, it's kind of a bummer on that end. And then also, I, lo- I just love the Aussie. It's just one of my favorite slams to watch live. Yeah. It's, it's, wise, it's brutal, but to watch the matches and the, the access you get, it's tremendous. It is very cool. Rod Laver will miss you. And, and tennis and the tours will miss you, but absence will only make the heart grow fonder, etc. And see you in the desert. Yeah, exactly. So one of the first things we should talk about is the news that happened just before this week's tournaments began, which is Rafael Nadal pulling out of Doha, and then probably more importantly also the Australian Open, uh, with citing a stomach virus which is different than what he'd pulled out of all the other tournaments from, sort of, which was a knee uh, injury, uh, several knee problems. Courtney, can you sort of talk us through why this stomach injury knocked him out and what you make of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, initially, I think when the reports happened that uh, came out that he had withdrawn and that he was citing a stomach injury, I think a lot of us were left kind of scratching our heads because, you know, it wasn't like a stomach muscle injury. It was a stomach virus injury or illness more than injury. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the Aussie opens two weeks away. How do you not recover from 
a stomach ailment within that time? Um, you know, all those sorts of questions. Um, as time, you know, kind of went on and, and more clarification was issued, I think that the, to me, at least my reading of the story, and I don't know, others may disagree, is that, um, you know, Rafa was training, that the stomach virus uh, interrupted his training to where he was off court for about four to five days. And that just kind of resuming training and kind of overcoming what was, it sounded like a fairly serious uh, illness, just that he was feverish and all that sort of stuff, just left him in a situation where he just wasn't confident that he'd be able to compete at the level that he wants to be able to compete at uh, the Aussie Open. So that would be kind of the the mindset there. You know, generally speaking, I don't really have a problem with the the withdrawal. I mean, it makes sense to me. Only because Rafa's been on court uh, practicing only since the end of November. So it hasn't really been that long. And then to go into the Aussie and really have a handful of matches at best to play. And even then, those matches are just two out of three. They're not best of five. You know, it's a tough ask. And this is the slam that left him, you know, doubled over in exhaustion after a near six-hour final. So it was never going to be an easy task for him. But, you know, but you, you know, you have to wonder, I guess, where his, where his head is at with respect to his confidence in his body at this point. But I don't know. How about you, Ben? Well, that's that's what I think, basically. I think that this tells us more about his confidence, I guess, at this time than anything. I mean, obviously, it's his body. He knows how he thinks he's going to be able to do and what his expectations are better than anybody else, well, him and people in his camp. But I just kind of wish that he'd rolled the dice and powered through this because from what I've heard, we're actually recording this after the rest of the episode. Because this is like a Correct. breaking news thing, we need to amend the show, which is an NCR first, so we're kind of excited <laughs> about that. But it's now January first, and he is back on the court. As we hear, I don't know if you heard that, Courtney, but I heard reports I did. that he was I, already back. We did a, a picture of it, yeah. So I just wish that he'd, you know, gone there and tried to see what he could make of it. I mean, we've seen Serena Williams, for example, obviously as Ryan Harris, and say men's and women's tennis, no comparing them, whatever. But we've seen her go to tournaments out of shape and play her way into form and get there. And especially with the ease with which the big four guys have had in the early rounds lately. You just felt like, I felt like I would like to see Rafa try that. And maybe it's a pride thing from this point. I mean, he is an 11-time Grand Slam champion. Maybe getting to the quarterfinals just isn't enough for him to risk it at this point. Or risk, you know, that being his ceiling at this tournament, he's not happy with that. But I don't know. I just, as someone who's missed seeing him play and missed having him in the mix, I just wish that he'd, because he does seem like he will be healthy enough when the time is to post up for this tournament. I just wish he'd, I don't know, rolled the dice and gone with it a little more because it's yeah. getting to be a long time at this point. It's he missed two slams, the Olympics just at some point you got to get, throw your hat back in the ring. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I know, I remember when he had initially announced that he was kind of pulling out of the 2012 season f- effectively um, and rehabbing, you know, really focusing on rehabbing his knees. I can't remember if it was, Chris Clary or Steve Tigner or, or who it was, John Wertheim, I can't remember which tennis writer wrote about it, but just kind of how their reading of the situation was that Rafa was really preparing for the last kind of third of his career. That at this point, you know, he had accomplished so much um, that, you know, he had played through, he had played, you know, a schedule that, that you know, through the hard courts and all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, everybody's been questioning whether or not his body could take it. And maybe, you know, now, and I think that uh, Nadal and Uncle Tony, both over the course of time, have acknowledged that his body can't take this level of play, or right. his style of play. You know, they've, they've you know, if, if they genuinely thought that it 
could, then they never would have tweaked his game to be a bit more offensive and, you know, to, to, to be more aggressive and stay close to the baseline. So, but yeah, I mean, whoever was that wrote it, which I think resonated with me a little bit, was that Rafa is going to prepare for the last third of his, his career and he's not going to come back to the court until he feels like he is 100% because whether, you know, people want to laugh or roll their eyes or question it or not, like I do think that Nadal's camp and Rafa probably feel that they've been, he's been playing, you know, less than 100% physically for the bulk of his career. And they don't, they don't want that to happen anymore, especially as, as it's going into the, the latter portion of his career. So to me, him withdrawing from the Aussie makes sense to me. Like I would hate to see him like go and play the open somewhat compromised. And, you know, the last time that he played the Aussie coming off of some sort of illness was what, 2000 and, Nine two thousand and ten, when he had to retire to Ferrer. Right, that was uh, twenty. That was twenty eleven, actually. Was it twenty eleven? Okay, yeah. uh, whichever year it was. But you know, that was a year that you know he was sweating profusely and you know through his kits and and all that sort of stuff. And then he ended up having to to retire to Ferrer with the I think it was like a hamstring injury or something like that or knee injury. So I don't know if his head's not there the way that Nadal plays. It's just not worth it, and I would hate for to see him go down to Melbourne, play, and and pick up another injury or something like that, and then be further derailed through the clay season because that's really where we all acknowledge he needs to make a move. So, right. Well, building building off of that, do you think we're setting up for him to have a sort of career, almost I guess one that hasn't happened in you know recent recent years in tennis, but used to happen all the time, like in the seventies and eighties, where he had true surface specialists and you had guys who really only ever played on clay are we ready for like a guy like nadal really restricting his hardcore tournaments like one or two a year if that and just playing a lot of clay i mean he's talking about playing acapulco but not the australian open which is seems yeah, like I, a weird balance to me and do but do we think that that can happen and that someone can do that in this day and age he can play south american swing acapulco a lot of European clay, the grass, maybe some post-Wimbledon clay, and then hang it up for the year. No, I don't think that you can, because I think that rankings-wise, in order to get into those clay tournaments, in order to, to get direct entry and all that sort of stuff, you need your ranking at a certain spot. And I don't think that getting the zero pointers for just like not playing hard court is really feasible. So right, no, but, I, but he, if he's winning matches on clay, he's not going to start missing ranking cutoffs. He might you know, break out of the top 10, but he's going to get into tournaments. Hold up. We're not, I'm not talking about Nadal. I'm talking about generally. You asked generally. Okay, Do I think Rafa is going to be specifically a clay court specialist? Absolutely not. I think okay. that Nadal is has way too much pride, you know, and understands that just being a clay court specialist, like, what is that for Rafa? Like, he's so head and shoulders better than, above, than everybody else, like, on clay for the most part, that, like, being just, like, playing clay just seems dumb. Like, and I think that he has more pride in himself as an athlete that he would, he wants to accept the challenge of winning on grass of winning on hard courts. But I think that in order to do that, he does understand that, that he needs to be fully fit, that he needs to be, you know, able to compete at his best there, that at, he may be able to win on clay at 80%. He can't win on hard courts at 80%. So, you know, if he's going to plan to come back in Acapulco, he's still going to play ostensibly Indian Wells in Miami. So he'll, we'll still see him in the hard courts in the spring. You expect him to play both those tournaments? If he withdraws from injury from one of them. But, you know, I think that under the ATP rules, he's at a point where he can skip one Masters. Okay. But uh, without a zero-pointer. So he could skip Miami, and especially now that he's not with... Uh, if the rumors are true that he's not with IMG, he could skip Miami. But I've always kind of thought that he would save that 
for Paris indoors because that's like a completely pointless tournament yeah. for him to play at the end of the year. Or, so, even, or even like Cincinnati or something. Right. You know, I mean, there, there are other tournaments where he could like take a break. I don't think that the, the India Wells Miami swing is really one to, to, to waste that get out of jail free card on. But, but yeah, I mean, um, all things being equal and, and health being not an issue, I definitely expect him to play both both of the hardcore masters. Uh, as we were just talking about Australia, we now talk about some Australian tennis coming up before the Australian Open gets underway. Another tournament that we're very fond of, the Hopman Cup, is before that on the opposite side of the continent. So we have a question about that from Curtis07, who asks us what our Hopman Cup predictions are. And also, how disappointing is it that Serbia and Spain are in separate groups. Hashtag <laughs> Anna. Hashtag Nando. Now I'm gonna let let's answer the second part of that first. Courtney, that's all you. Okay. Um it is disappointing, obviously. I mean, for all we know, that's part that was part of like the contract for Ivanovich to get there <laughs> this year was to make sure that, that Fernando and Spain were on the other side uh in group B. Now now for people who don't know what you're talking about, shed any more light on that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Anna Ivanovich and Fernando Verdasco famously dated at the end of 2008 to the beginning of 2009. Okay. They met, I think, for the first time at the U.S. Open, maybe, like via their agents or something. And then, yeah, and it was a total boon to Fernando's career because after that, he ended up being the guy who clinched the Davis Cup for Spain, beating, God, what's his actual name? I just want to call him Chucho. Um, oh, um, Yeah, Jose Akasuso. And uh, and then in 2009, when they were still dating, I believe, or had they broken up? In Australia? Yeah. Yeah, I think they were still together at that point. I think they were still together. But anyways, he, he almost beats Rafael Nadal in the semifinal, and, you know, that was kind of the peak of the Verdasco on-court stuff. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, but they did break up, and yeah. So <laughs> they're both in Perth, and... I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb and say they aren't going to be partying and hanging out together. Oh, so sad. I don't think Novak would allow it. I bet you yeah. Novak would just be like, you freaking stay on the other side of the room, buddy. <laughs> That'd be nice. He's a good big brother type in that way. He is. He is. He's very, he's very, he's, I mean, no, all jokes aside, he's very protective of Anna. Yeah. So. That'd be good. She'll have her a buddy and Andre Pekovic there. Exactly. Okay. It'll be fun times. And they are in the same group. We can go over the groups a little bit, do some hardcore x's and o's here sure uh group a of the hotman cup is serbia italy germany and australia serbia is anovanovic and novak djokovic italy is skiavoni seppi germany is pekovic haas and australia mighty australia will be ashley Barty and bernard tomic uh Barty taking the place of casey delacqua who was injured recently are you not going to do Barty Rock chant? Barty, I'm a big fan of Ash Barty's matches in Melbourne, if for no other reason than that the little choir of drunk Aussie dudes, I don't know if they, they have a real name, but it's escaping me at the moment. Anyway, they do like song lyrics and inject players' names into them. And Ashley Barty's name works better than anybody else yeah, by far. Pretty much. Like it's incredible. Like you will go to if you're in Melbourne, go to go find Ashley wherever Ashley Barty's playing. It's hilarious. And it's, so they do things like, you know, my girl likes to Barty all the time. <laughs> Barty Rock is in the house tonight. Let's see. What what were I don't know, just a lot of Barty stuff. Party, Barty. Yeah. Et cetera. Anything any song that has party, they'll swap Barty in and it's just hilarious and great. And it's just 
quintessentially Australian Open. It's pretty great. And clearly she was like, she was like 16 last year and she had people making up songs about her and cheering. It was clearly liked it, even if her tennis was not especially good there last year. Yeah. So that's them. I don't expect the Aussies to contend. There's actually, who's going to actually win these matches. Italy, probably not either. It'll come down to Serbia and Germany, I guess. And I think Serbia would win that. I think so. Just yeah. Strength of Djokovic. Djokovic, I mean, is really going to outpunch everybody else of the guys in that division. Yeah, it's just for Anna to carry her weight. And people forget that last year they did make the final. Two years ago. Yeah. Or sorry, two years ago, and they had to withdraw because Anna got hurt. But uh, was it the final, or the semifinal? They made the final. There's no semifinal there. It That's just right. Goes they made the final. That's right. Round robin to final. Yeah. So, um, so they're they're a good team. They their mixed doubles are hilarious. If you can catch the stream. It's just fun. To, I mean, Anna and Novak are just a fun team, and I think it's it. You know, Hotman Cup is very lucky that they're able to to get them back as the, the number of times they've been able to do so. You know, so but yeah, I mean, you have to assume that Novak. I mean, this is the analysis is the same as Davis Cup, right? You have to assume that Novak will win all of his matches. Um, so it really comes down to Anna or mixed in terms of clinching matches for Serbia. And right. I don't think Anna will lose to Petkovic. I don't see her losing to Barty. And I don't see her losing to Schiavone, really. Yeah, either. I don't either. So, you know, two... That's, uh, a, that's a 50-50, but, I mean, they can still lose to Italy and still win the group, I right. guess. Exactly. Exactly. So, and just even just mixed, they're probably a better mixed team. The only team I would say would be a better mixed team would be Italy. Yeah, probably. Seppi and Schiavone, but, um, yeah. Maybe, yeah, in that group, yeah. In that group, yeah. We'll get to the next group now, Group B. Serbia's top seed in Group A, where the top seed in Group B is the good old USA Led by Venus Williams and John Isner. That's a fun, that's a fun team. That's a tall team. It's a tall, fun it. team. I like that team. It's a good team. In Spain with Annabelle Medina Garrigues and Fernando Verdasco. South Africa uh, with Chanel Skeppers and Kevin Anderson. And then France with Matilda Johansson and Joe Wilfried Songa. How so. about France being the, 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 the fourth seed in Group B? That's weird. That speaks a lot to... Johansson. yeah. I mean, Songa is a top 10 player and they're the lowest seed. Um, it's kind of weird seeing France seated below South Africa. Yeah. Just in terms of tennis power might. But anyway, I think France, well, let's see. I think I think the U.S. should win this group. Agreed. For sure. Well. I mean, Venus should beat all these people. I mean, Venus got a pretty nice draw here. Getting Johansson, Skeppers, and Medina Garrigues. For sure. For sure. So she should win all of those. And then Isner should beat Verdasco. Anderson and probably lose to Sanga, but I don't know. I think I think you're a little to be. I, I disagree. I think you're a little high on Isner on those. You don't think that Isner? Isner should, no, know, Isner Anderson right. went full three in a really tightly contested match in I want to say Shanghai or Beijing that I believe Anderson came out on top of. Okay. I think I think that that's just big serving, which you know, which means it's just going to be a flip of a coin match. So Isner Sanga hard court. I don't know. I mean, I I think, and then even Verdasco. I think. I mean, I am in the camp of just believing that John can win any match, but he can also lose any match. So he's just not as reliable to me. He's an actual player to watch in Hopman, sort of to get a yes you know, temperature for his season. Yes, I uh, totally agree. Because these are it's a good measuring stick for him. Venus not as much because these are not right tough opponents for her. But right. No, I think in doubles just... they should be okay. So I think they'll get through the group. You think they'll be okay in doubles too? Yeah. I mean, Venus has won, what, like 12 Yeah, I guess, no, I guess that's right. John's, John's not horrible in doubles. And John um, will get to serve to the girl half the time. Yeah. 
actually there's a clip somewhere i don't know if it's still up i feel like it got taken down of him john isner serving against justine ennen yeah and it's just that's just fun yeah yeah i mean i think i don't know i mean i i'm inclined to back spain in this group okay but i don't know it's pretty it's a pretty evenly matched group i think good for us to agree disagree i mean you know yeah it see we do disagree sometimes you guys hashtag embrace debate (laughs) see you can debate without screaming it's okay it's it's really it's actually it's actually nicer probably it can't be done yeah who knew so Um, then the final oh you have anything else to say about group b no 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 not at all i mean i'm just kind of working it out in my head i mean yeah it's just it's a bit group b is just kind of wide open to me i wouldn't be surprised for if any of those teams made the final okay because all those guys are wild cards i mean i think venus will dominate on the women's side but all the guys are wild cards and i think the mixed is going to be Live Hopman mixed ain't nothing like it. Exactly. So Group B is a tougher call for me. Okay. So let's say Serbia, we would think, would probably be the favorite to win then overall. Mm -hmm. um, Just because they're more reliable. Um, And Djokovic really should not lose anybody here. Right. But Venus can definitely beat Ivanovic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that could be a good final, Serbia-USA. That would be a great final, I think. Yeah. So let's hope for that. Agreed. And... Yeah, so there's the Hopman Cup 2013, and that really does kick this season underway. Even though Brisbane is now emerged as a real more, it's like a premier event. It's a bigger, pretty sizable WTA tournament that will have both, both Sharapova and Serena there. I think that unless those two play each other, I think that all eyes will be on Hopman for the most part. Mm-hmm. At least all hearts, anyway. Well, but Brisbane also has Andy Murray. That's true, but he's not really playing anybody. There's True. nobody else there for him to compete with. And he's going to coast there like Should. before. Should. Yeah. So if he doesn't, that'll be news. But that's about it. This question comes from TJC05, who asks us, what storylines slash trends from 2012 are you looking to see continue in 2013? And what did you see in 2012 that you hope we don't see in 2013? So, Courtney, this goes into another question, a couple questions we got about, like, our tennis New Year's resolutions. Right. This is a little separate from that. So, let's just address this question. Okay. Courtney, what do you want to see continue, and what do you want to stop? Um, I would like to see the continued parity among the ATP. I'd like it if, you know, once again, you saw, like, the four majors being won by four different guys. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, so that's kind of my main one with the ATP. What I what I don't want to see with the ATP is any major injury that takes one of those four off the table. Right. I, that what we found this year with the rise of of Murray, um, because in the past it kind of hasn't really mattered as much because there was really kind of a big three. So if you took like so there was already imbalance in the draw. So if you took like one of them out, like if Rafa got injured or if like Novak skipped something or fed, like you still had like one to one, like you, the the draw actually got balanced. Whereas now that there's a big four, you take one out and the draw is horribly unbalanced. And I really didn't like seeing that, you know, in, at the U S open at the, at the Olympics at, you know, a lot of the major tournaments. So, you know, let's just hope for a healthy big four next year, which we didn't get this year. You want to do your ATP picks and then move to WTA? My ATP pick would be just to have some new life in there. I want somebody else to make a Grand Slam final outside the top four. I would like for, even if we get one that has none of the top four in a Grand Slam final, like you know, two outsiders, the way we had um, back when it was just Federer and Nadal sharing everything, when in the 08 Australian Open, when Djokovic played Sanga in the final, and it was like a completely like 
you know, fresh cast of characters. Something like that would be good. Just more chaos in ATP, I guess, when it comes to big tournaments. That's all I ask. Let's move on to the WTA. Okay. Courtney, what, what are your WTA resolutions? Uh, resolutions or predictions? You know, wishes. Yeah, wishes. Um, I would like to see more movement, more upward movement by the young guns, by like kind of the Sloane Stevens, Christina McHale, Laura Robson, Heather Watson, like that whole kind of crew of of younger players. Um, you know, not that they didn't move up this year, but um, I'd like to I'd like them to become more relevant. I think that would be interesting. Is if we kind of had what was effectively, you know, three generations still in play. Like, yeah. you know, you had the Serena, you know, which camp, which you have to include kind of Maria and, um, you know, kind of the older guard, even though mm-hmm. Maria's not old. And then you had kind of your generation, whatever you want to call it, Caro, Vika, Petra, like that whole crew, Aga, mm-hmm. kind of with the push. And then if you had like a young, you know, generation next, which was like the next crew of kids that are just like, you know, still in their teens or in their, their you know, just turning 2021, um, kind of pushing up on the back, on the back, that would be cool too. So I'd like to see that. That would definitely, be cool. and I would like to see that for the ATP too. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to revisit my ATP ones and be like, gosh, like I would love it if like Tomic and Harrison and Raonic and all those, you know, the Kanish Corey, like all those kind of younger guys, like really Grigor Dimitrov, like really finally became weekly staples. Right. And there is clearly a desperation for that on the ATP level. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for fresh meat, for young blood to come in. I mean, you see how excited people get over Ronich. Mm-hmm. And Ronich, arguably, at slams anyway, hasn't had better results than, you know, WTAers who get, like, no results. Well, oh, right, yeah. yes. And then also WTAers who don't get any sort of, or as much hype for it, like, you know, Pavlyuchenkova or something. Right. Pavlyuchenkova's slam results are way better than Ronich's. But Ronich gets this sort of, people are ready for... The next big thing i've been waiting sort of boredly tapping their foot almost on some level right so we'll see hopefully somebody breaks through both sides and we get some new new yeah new, i mean new energy because it's you know it's important as much as like we want to talk about like how the stability obviously i think we are both kind of fans of the stability that we have generally speaking on both tours right now but you know uh, from a practical perspective and from a cynical daily you know person who has to write about tennis on a daily basis perspective i like having the broadest cast of characters i could possibly have because there's only so many ways that you can describe david ferrer's tremendously impressive and you know respect building run to the semifinals where he was once again dispatched easily by the top four like there's only so many times i can write that and not sound like i'm just rewriting what i've already written 10 times before you know and so you know, the younger players get you excited. They infuse some some newness, some hope and promise that of what the future of this sport will hold. And so, you know. You get to think about their potential. I yeah. mean, with, with Ferrer, there's no sense from anybody, I don't think, that Ferrer has really room to get better than he is now. Yeah. I mean, Ferrer, people think, is, you know, overachieved, uh, peaked on some. People don't say peaked, but I think that's implied. Mm-hmm. And clearly, he's hit a, a ceiling, a high ceiling. At number four, you know, there's no dreaming of the future of the generation Ferrer coming up. Right. Whereas with Robson, Stevens, McHale, Watson, Vekic, whatever, yeah, you can do that, and it's so, fun. Yeah, it's fun to see them develop, and you know, like you, you get, you know, so you can. It's a good balance to have. It's the the you know kind of the the, the you know you have the stability to provide you like the high quality 
highly competitive tennis that you want to expect you see every weekend. But then you also need to have storylines in the beginning, you know, first four days of just, you know, players developing, you know, getting big wins, taking tough losses. Because right now it just really feel, it feels like if you don't get that young energy into the tour now, that really a lot of 2013 is going to be about the flame out of a lot of players. The Schiavones, the Yankoviches, you know, like that weird, gen- like that's going to be, those are going to be the results that everybody talks about in the first four days of, of a tournament rather than right. like, Oh, look at this great win that this person had. Like, that's great. Like, you know, and those, and those can go hand in hand if need be. I mean, yeah. Robson can beat, you know, or this happened to the US Open. Ski, uh, Stevens beat Schiavone. Right. It was very much, you know, torch pass Robson beat Kleisters, you know, same sort of thing. Right. So just let's, you know, moving on to the next act, but with characters there who clearly are going to stick around for a while. Speaking of young people, let's go to another question from Facebook, uh, from Abby Hinto. This is on our Facebook page, which you can all visit at facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. And Abby Hinto asks us, what do you think of the Capriati rule? Mm. Personally, I'm missing the teenage prodigies. Is it time to update it? Or are prodigies really now impossible due to the physicality of the game? So, Courtney, we want young blood. We, what do we think of the Capriati rule or the age rules in general? Yeah, so the age rule on the WTA is that if you're under 18, you're limited in the number of uh, tournaments you can play and uh, the WTA-level tournaments you can play. And a lot of that has to do, obviously, uh, in reference to Jennifer Capriotti, but other teen phenoms who burned brightly when they were 14, 15, 16, 17, and then just crashed and burned on a generally a personal level rather than necessarily an on-court level. It wasn't like they were great and then they sucked on court, but that... You know, their early success really uh, brought upon a lot of like personal struggles off court. So, so yeah, so the, AD, the WTA put in these age restrictions. Generally speaking, I like the age restrictions. I am probably a bit more paternalistic when it comes to the WTA, the young WTA players than other people. I definitely understand like people wanting to see more of, you know, young blood, teenage prodigies. I don't really care. Like, I don't really care like what age a player is. Like, it doesn't make me personally respect their accomplishments more or less or not respect but get excited more or less i guess okay yeah it just has never really been a thing for me as to kind of what so, age so on that note like when Alora robson makes the second week of the u.s open and there's no part of your excitement that is at all related to and she's only 18 um Okay, I get your point. <laughs> like, okay. Yes, no, that that's fair because well because you look at it and you say she's only eighteen and so then like you, you're still gonna see this person play and you're still they're developing so early and maybe there's a lot of excitement though about that she's only eighteen because there are no eighteen year olds doing it. Maybe without the age restrictions you had more, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen year old players like notching big wins. Maybe the accomplishment isn't as as significant because it's so common. Not mm-hmm. so common, but more common than it is now but but the fact is is that like laura robson got to play outside of age restriction last year when she turned 18 so she was outside of you know like that was she made her big splash and she's only 18 and so the system works arguably right Right. like she spent you know years kind of being incubated you know a lot of these players being incubated and and i think ben you and i both are really excited about what madison keys um might be able to do she just won the the wild card into the main draw of the aussie open via the usta playoff um, and she's 17. Yeah, she's 17 now. That's right. Yeah, 17. She's turning 18 in 20, 
13, I believe. And she's had like already pro success. I mean, she's yeah. she's won pro matches even before this year. She's done last year. I mean, there's a lot to be excited about her game. I would rather just that I would just rather protect these girls at that age and then like at 18 unleash them upon the world than have them especially, you know, like chase money right. uh, and chase sponsorship uh, without any kind of understanding of what consequences may lie down the road. Okay. So I, I personally I personally think it's gone. The age rule right now is a little too strict just because, um, well, Capriotti, first of all, was playing WTA tournaments and making Grand Slam semifinals, I believe, with the French. She was 13 years old, like 13, which is, you know, barely even a teenager. That's, you know, clearly a child at that point. And so that, I don't, I think that could have definitely deserved to be stopped. And even Hingis, you know, winning Grand Slams or having been on the tour for a while at 16 when she started winning three Grand Slams in a year. I understand why people get uncomfortable with that. Um, however, I think it's unfair to the players on some level because people peak at different times. I mean, maybe you look at somebody who had early success in their career, like a Hingis, who was at her best at 16. And then by the time she was, I think she won her last Grand Slam at 18. If she hadn't had been able to play and rack up three Grand Slams when she was 16 and had to wait to turn pro until she was 18, maybe she wouldn't have been as good. And I think that also players can get better faster when they're at younger ages because it's just like learning a foreign language when you're on the tennis court playing big matches. You learn better when you're younger. And there's some validity in that. So I've heard people, I've heard Hingis herself say that actually. So I think that's part of it. And these players also are spending their entire lives on tennis anyway. It's not really like Madison Keys by being kept off the tour gets to go have a normal life and go to a normal high school or anything. No, she's traveling around and practicing full time as is. So and especially in and the players who play with all the junior slams, all the junior tournaments are also largely full time, if not completely full time, at least large part of the time travelers already. So I think that the what they're being kept, what they are left relegated to do is not as different from tour as it might otherwise be. Obviously, there's less scrutiny. You're not playing pro tournaments, but I think that it could probably be pushed back the age limits to, I don't know, 16 or something. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I get the Hingis argument, but I also am kind of like, that's so that's just a tremendous amount of speculation. I mean, she won her first slam, you know, she won her first, like, last slam at 18. What's the, who's to say that if she doesn't just, like, be under the age restriction and she comes into the sport, like, more physically mature, more emotionally mature, that she doesn't play for, I mean, you talk about a player whose life was just, like, interrupted by, you know, whose tennis career was kind of cut really, really short. Who's to say that if she doesn't go into it with, you know, more maturity and physically and emotionally that she doesn't she isn't a better player at that age um at at 18 at 19 at 20 and 21 like why why do we think that she was a better player because she was 16 than she was when she was like 19 i'm not entirely sure maybe it has something to do with you know young people being fearless or they gets talked about or the way that you know people talked about like the chinese gymnasts who are clearly 12 years old having you know no and this is what uh, you want education. to encourage. You're no, making, I don't. I don't want. I don't want twelve-year-old <laughs> Chinese toddlers, you know, in our, playing in Arthur Ashe. No, that's not what I'm asking for. But I do think that there's certain players who just, for all we know, Madison Keys, not in one fifty k like recently in December. She's had she won the wild card playoff pretty easily. She's had some big results. That's her second time winning the wild card playoff. Um, and maybe it'll turn out, you know, in four years, or whatever that. That will have been her peak. 
And that time was sort of squandered waiting on the sidelines. I, uh, I don't, I just can't, I don't buy that argument. I just don't think that like, I don't know, on some level to me, like if your peak is uh, in playing professional tennis is at like 16, 17 years old, that's weird. And maybe it's just because like, I, I don't know why I think that. I just think that that's like, it's almost like if that's your peak, then that's, then tough shit. Sorry, excuse my language, but like, that's just kind of like tough luck. I mean, you know, this is a sport of, 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 I think that generally professional sports should be sports for women, for grown adults and not for like a kid who's still growing, you know, growing out her baby teeth, but can happen, just happens to be able to hit a fearless forehand because she doesn't know any better. That's just not, I don't want to encourage that, I guess. Well, we talked, we talked about this before about players who just peak at different times. I mean, let's shift it back a little bit. Like we, so Anna Vanovich was 20 when she won the French Open, 19 when she made the final the year before. Mm-hmm. Just shift that back. I mean, and now I think it's probably fair to say with her that her best results are probably behind her. That, you know, she was somebody who careers go in different rhythms and her sort of was strongest at the beginning. Then it looks like it's going to be now in the later stages. Hingis, obviously, same thing, but three years earlier. So if, I don't know, I don't know exactly where we're going with this, but I don't think that if Ivanovich had somehow been kept out of the sport until she was, you know, 20, she might have never had any success and it's not always about delaying stuff yeah no i understand that i mean i just think that like i i don't know i guess on some level i just i don't have a problem with that if you shift everything back and anna ivanovich never wins a slam and is just like a mediocre top 20 player okay like you know because if you because at the end of the day you're just leveling a field okay so to the extent the age restrictions exist and they're put in place and it's 18 years old then everybody's got to play it. And that, that's just the sport now is that like you can't really commit to it until you are 18 years old. And I think that, that for me personally looking at it, like I don't mind that. I don't mind that like it, like if you're a kid in the States that you should be required to, you know, go to school and get a high school education and have the opportunity to do that, whether it's at an academy or actually in a high school or being homeschooled and graduating at 18 years old and then committing to this as a career. I mean, same in Britain or, you know, and stuff like that. And I guess I do worry a lot about about having players who are coming out of countries where they are really kind of seen as the cash cow and being put on these circuits at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old um, to their kind of personal and psychological and emotional detriment. I would rather lose the Hingis Grand Slams at 16 years old, the Ivanovich Slams at 20 years old. I would rather lose that if it meant that we were like kind of having people who were on tour, who could be on tour for a longer amount of time and kind of were at a better spot emotionally to deal with what the rigors of the tour was okay but then what we're what i'm what i was guess i was trying to say is that the junior circuit is not that much more forgiving than the pros at this point i mean a lot of juniors or some juniors anyway play all four grand slams uh at the junior level and don't get any money for it um they play all four they go to all these other things they practice full-time they don't really go to school so why not let them in the big time, if they are somebody like Madison Keys, who managed has managed to get a lot of big wins, barely being allowed to play anything. I mean, it's probably fair to say if Madison Keys, there were no age rules, we, we both agree that Madison Keys would be easily top hundred, right? Yes. Yeah. So why not just let her? Because clearly she's just you know, sort of 
been stuck in, you know, on a stationary bike when she could have been winning races. Again, like I, like I said, I just personally am way more inclined to be very protective of them than maybe others are. And maybe people just want to see it as like a straight up sport. And it's just like, you know, just, you know, everybody, one, two, three, ready, set, go. Everybody sprint and whoever gets to the end of the line first gets there regardless of age and like whatever like that. And, and I think that that's just a really dangerous thing because I think that when you talk about other sports where you do have teenage phenoms, like, you know, like whether it's, I don't know, like, like gymnastics and figure skating and all those sorts of things, those are not sports that you do until you're 30 years old. Those are not sports that you are going to do until you're like, you look at Venus, she's going to turn 33 next year and she's still playing. Um, And she made the U S open final at 17. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. No, I mean, I see what you're saying, but like it's, but she, you know, I don't, I just don't see that it's worth the number of girls where it could be, I see it as being much more problematic for more women than, than for, I mean, I'd rather protect more girls than from kind of being beaten down by the tour than to, you know, push like, uh, exalt, you know, a handful, three to five people who the system works for. Here's a hypothetical then what if okay capriati obviously was referenced directly in this question mm-hmm. um what if capriati just happened to be a person who's going to wind up being unstable making poor choices no matter when she started playing pro tennis okay and it didn't have anything to do with her starting it i mean she started i'm not suggesting they should allow people to be doing it 13 the way she was i do think some limits on it are need to happen i mean just from normal stuff but you see all the other sports like swimming, there are people winning gold medals in swimming this year when they were like sixteen, like Katie Ledecky or whoever else. Right, but uh, swimming is completely different. Swimming you can do when you're in high school. You can do it in club. You don't travel. You have like world championships like once a year. Like it's okay. it's you know like you can't you can't compare that. Like swimming is just not a, not a direct comparison at all. Um, you know, like for me, it's a little bit more. You you'd see a little bit more like within within figure skating, like teenage phenoms. Are there? Is it in golf? Maybe. Golf, I'm, there not might sure, be? I'm not sure what the golf golf is, but golf yeah, figure know. skating and gymnastics are a little bit different now because like the old people can't compete at all. Like there's really no there's no Venus Williams in either of those sports whatsoever. I mean, if you're 24 right. in those sports, you're ancient. Right, and a lot of that that has to do with like how much your body is beaten down. It has really nothing to do with like oh you know, but like to do what those girls have to do from an age of eight years old through like 16, it's with all due respect to gymnasts and figure skaters, both of which my sister was, it's disgusting. Like, yeah. it's absolutely brutal. And, like, at 24 years old, you're completely screwed. And you don't even make the money that, like, you know, tennis players would otherwise. I mean, I get it. I mean, I, on some level, like, yeah, like, you know, there's so much money in tennis. Like, for these players, like, why not let people, like, play themselves out of poverty at such a young age? Why not let, like, girls be, like, you know, kind of the person that, 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 you know, can put food on their parents' tables at like 13 years old because they can go and win like a, you know, or at 16 years old because they can go win a 250 and make money. Like, I get that and I understand that. But I look at those situations where you do have the flameouts and the burnouts. And and I think also just theoretically about like what it would be like for me if I had to be like on the road all the time and, and just not just on the road. I understand what you're the argument you're making on the juniors because they do travel a lot on the junior mm-hmm. circuit, obviously. But, like, the pressure is just different. I mean, we can't, you can't say that, like, playing, like, a junior, like, 10K somewhere or an ITF is, like, the same as, like, playing even in, a, like, a third round of a 250 when the person well, ac- across the net from you is, like, I don't know, 
like what, whoever, whatever. And the stakes are just higher because it's costed more for you to be there and you got to earn that money back. And, you know, and on top of that, like you're now like more in the spotlight than you maybe were when you were juniors. So you have agents and, you know, sponsors and all them preying on you and you're 16 years old and you don't know any better. I don't know. I'm just like I said, I'm like well, super protective. Understand. But the way the age rules work is that they limit how many you can do, not that you can do it at all. No, like I Ryan Har- like Ryan Harrison won an ATP match in Houston when he was like 15 or something. Mm-hmm. So that moment would have had. So then, doesn't that actually cut against your argument that like because they can play like if Madison Keys Madison Keys has a main draw like a uh, slot in the Aussie Open. She's been in the main draw of a bunch of uh, I think like a few slams at this point. Mm-hmm. Like she's getting the opportunities to play, like and and to really prove herself and to really show like. You know, right, so she's had all sorts of pressure already, so this hasn't protected her from anything. Mm, no, because you, if you can't play, if the number of tournaments that you are allowed to play is limited, then your value goes down. It like, lowers I, the stake. It lowers the stakes for you. You're saying it lowers the stakes for you, and it lowers the stakes for you because it lowers the like it lowers your general value on the open market. Like I'm talking like sponsorships and agents and all that sort of stuff. Like why would I sign on to? you know, take on and push like Madison Keys when I can't push Madison Keys because she's only going to show her face like whatever it is, like 14 times a year, I think is uh, somewhere around there. I'm not, it's like a gradation in terms of like what the, the limits are, um, the tournament limits. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I just I've never really had not a problem with it. I mean, I could see it. I'm OK with it, like dropping like 17, but I don't really anything below that. I don't know. OK. Well, clearly there was a lot here. Uh, just think, mentioning uh, Harrison. Harrison actually seems like an interesting example of somebody who maybe would have done better if they'd been allowed to play pro early, and who maybe did have a was a really early peaker. Just you know, burying him way prematurely here, obviously. But for all we know, maybe he would have been best at seventeen and never got the chance. But why do you say he would have peaked early? Just because, because he won. He, he, he had that big early 15? one big early result. He hasn't you know followed up on necessarily that kind of crazy potential yeah i just i don't know on some level i guess i'm just kind of like i don't respect that level of potential like if the best you can do is from like 15 to 17 i just there's something just really abnormal about that that i'm not sure it just doesn't resonate with me okay i guess like clearly not a hingis fan no i mean not not that i wasn't a hingis fan i liked hingis but like i just kind of just to me i respect more your achievements like when you are fully mature physically when you are like, and that does not happen until you're in your twenties when you're a woman. And, and well, and maybe also because like, I am a fan of like big hitter tennis. Mm-hmm. So obviously you're hitting the ball bigger. Generally speaking, I think Ivanovich is probably the outlier here, <laughs> but you're probably hitting the ball bigger, like in your mid twenties than you are when you're like, I don't know if that's true. When you talk about like Boris old. Becker or somebody, the way he won Wimbledon at 17. I never considered Becker a big hitter, though. I mean, not that he was like a slice and dicer, but that wasn't kind of his. Okay, well, Roddick at like 19 then. Well, yeah, but that's like tactical. Maybe, or maybe he just, you know, sort of was all punched out by the time he was 25 in terms of power. I don't think so. Not not based on his run at the U.S. Open. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting debate. I mean, if people want to weigh in, feel free to do so. I mean, I think that there's... I can see it on both sides. And at the end of the day, like, I don't think that like my uh, argument is necessarily entirely based on objective metrics. It's just more like, 
I don't know, just being around the players and seeing the just grossness. I've talked about it before on this. We talked about it last show, actually, with the juniors. And, yeah, you know. with the juniors and seeing all that. You know what? I'm totally fine with them not being away from their bases for that long all over the all over the country. And, and Understood. Yeah. So we can go to a related question next. Bshap94 asks, do you think the NCAA should allow college tennis players to accept prize money that they may earn while still enrolled? So this is actually a more tennis-specific question than I guess I initially thought it was when I first looked it over. So they're at, she, uh, Bshap is asking questions about somebody like a Nicole Gibbs, I guess, mm-hmm. who is playing some pro tournaments. Well, Mallory, while... yeah, Mallory Burdett and her U.S. Open run. Right. So they're potentially asking, should Mallory Burdett be able to take the 65000 I think, roughly, that she won at the U.S. Open for making the third round, and then go back, take that money, and then go back to Stanford to play college tennis. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's fine. <laughs> I do, too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fine. I think that I've never personally had a problem with players, with um, college collegiate players getting some money for what they do, especially given the amount of revenue that they, they drive um, for the co- universities. Totally. Uh, and obviously that's particular to football and basketball, but cause I don't know that tennis is really driving. No, tennis, I don't think, I don't think tennis, tennis is um, a title. Nine. Any school. <laughs> I mean for women. Yeah, for sure. But it doesn't, I don't, I don't think it makes money anywhere. No, it doesn't, think. you know? And so, but, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, if these players, so long as I think that there's some restrictions, in other words, like you can't go play a pro tournament during the training season or the actual collegiate season. So if like, obviously you're, you know, which you wouldn't, I wouldn't think like if you're playing for Stanford and you have like obviously matches against other schools every week, like you're not playing pro term, pro level tournaments. But yeah, if it's the summer, like, which is what the, the Stanford girls did this summer. Um, and USC, Maria Sanchez, I think is her name. Yeah. You know, like it's summertime. They're not playing for these schools. No. At most, they would be, you know, and I think at the university level at NCAA athletics, like you have like um, a period where actually you're not supposed, you're not allowed to do any official training for your school team. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you're in a situation where like you're not doing anything for your your school team you're not anything like yeah if you're gonna go and you go and make like the fourth round of san diego or or stanford then yeah take the money it's no different than working that's exactly what i think i mean there's no different than being a like for like mallory burdett like going out and having a summer job and like i don't know being a lifeguard at a pool or something and getting paid you know 10 bucks an hour to do that then, you know, Mallory Bennett being like, I'm going to pay up some extra cash. I'm going to just go play this tennis tournament near my hometown in Stanford. Right. And maybe I'll make $20,000 doing that or whatever, right. making the second round. No, no different. Why not let people make money? I mean, I worked, you know, in the cafeteria for a while when I worked, went to the University of Michigan. And I got paid hourly for that. Why shouldn't a football player get paid for, you know, doing something that's much more high profile at the school? Yeah. So. And obviously I, there's there's rules, right? I mean, like, I think that if you do it, then if you get injured – you know, then yeah, you lose your scholarship or, or, you know, like there has to be some sort of thing that protects the university in terms of the investment that they've made in you in terms of giving you a scholarship. But outside of that, why not? Why not indeed. All right. Another question comes from Chris Walsh on face another Facebook question. He asks very basic question about 2013. What grand slam will produce the best final? Courtney, how do you, uh, figure this question out 
Yeah, we were talking, Ben and I were talking about this before, and maybe it's because I've just gotten off a week and where I caught up with the television show House of Lies, which is about management consulting. Okay. Um, which I think I kind of recommend. It's not great, but it was good. I liked it. Half-hearted recommendation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's Don Cheadle and Kristen Bell, both of whom I love, yeah. and Ben Schwartz, who plays John Ralphio on Parks and Rec. Um, and he basically plays John Ralphio as a management consultant. I mean, it's funny. It's a 30-minute Showtime show. Anyway, sorry. But, um, but the, you know, just um, that this question kind of is more about how you get to the, the answer as opposed to the answer itself. Right. You know, kind of like those old Microsoft interview questions where it's like, how many ping pong balls could fit in this room? It's not about your answer. It's about showing your work. So, yeah. So I would put – I would take the French out of it. Um, I would, Why I would, is that? Because I think that generally speaking, the French Open finals have not been great over the last few that. years. So um, just because I th- and not because like the tennis is good, you know, but like I think Rafa is just Rafa on that surface. And then if it's not Rafa, let's say that if Rafa were to crash out early, chances I would put my second, you know, bet on Novak. And I just think that Novak and Rafa are head and shoulders better than everyone else on clay. Yeah, I mean the last the last Novak Federer match of the French was ugly. Yeah, it was gross. It was I don't know how many I don't know how many how many matches on clay they've actually played against each other. Now that I think about it, Novak and Fed, I can't remember too many. Yeah, not a whole lot. Yeah, hmm. that's true. Interesting. Yeah, so I take I take the French out of it. I'm gonna take the U.S. Open out of it as well. Okay. Just because I think that I don't know, just generally the end of the season, the last slam of the season stuff it's um you know you get people who are kind of tired and stuff like that you probably have to say that last year the best women's final was us open oh yeah sorry i'm thinking men for some reason okay that's fine sorry. you can approach them uh, differently yeah so this is for men like i just don't think that the us open has given us great men's finals either like super memorable ones i mean like delpo fed was pretty good if not weird 2010 yeah. It all. Djokovic is pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty good. But for whatever reason, they're not standing out. So to me, I just, I don't know, maybe, I always just think the Aussie and Wimbledon produced the best ATP finals. And given everything, I'm going to go Wimbledon okay. as, as giving the best ATP final. And then for the women, best WTA final, yeah, I actually go with the US Open. I just think, okay. again, the French is always random. Because we don't really have clay. I mean, we have clay specialists on the WTA, but for whatever reason, they can't come through when you need them to at the French. Um, and it's been a while since we've had like an epic French Open final. The Aussie, I, it's tough. I mean, the Aussie could be pretty good if Vika and um, and Serena make the final. Yeah, no, definitely. If they that, do anywhere, it'll be good. Yeah, that should be that. That would be really, really an inter- a really interesting match. And then Serena at Wimbledon gone. Like, whoever she plays in the final is just going to be, like, one-way traffic. Right. So, that's okay. my that's me. Okay. For the men, I will say, I totally agree with you, Nadal. If he, assuming he gets there, French Open final has always sort of been a foregone conclusion. Or once he was proven by beating Mariana Puerta or whoever mm-hmm. after that. And I guess he played Federer the next year in 06. It was, people didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But after that, it's been all Nadal all the time. And if Nadal m- misses it, it had to be something kind of interesting to be, you know, really good. It had to be something, I don't know, like Del Potro, Federer, or something weird. Mm-hmm. Where it would wound up being even, but not, you know, marquee, per se, in terms of what you think of as being the premier clay quarters of right now. Yeah, Australian Open, I think it's too slow on the men's side to be great. I mean, I just, going back to last year anyway, I don't need another six-hour final. 
Um, so for the men, I will pick. Uh, I'll pick Wimbledon. Also, I think that Wimbledon, because it has a roof, is sort of ensured of higher quality tennis throughout the tournament. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the U.S. Open, maybe Djokovic was really up and down in that final, and Murray to a lesser extent too. Yeah. I feel like. And Djokovic was sort of clearly feeling the, the fatigue kicking in on that Monday final. Right. Yosef will have a Monday final. So I'll pick Wimbledon for the men. Just because there have been some really good ones this year. It's just really good. Uh, Djokovic-Nadal was pretty decent when they played the year before. Obviously the, you know, quote-unquote greatest match of all time, Federer-Nadal. All pretty solid. Federer-Erotic was pretty good a few times. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Wimbledon I like. Women, women I will go with Australia. Okay. It was clearly not that in 2012. I mean, it was the worst final we've had in a while, actually, on the women's side. In any Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. The way that Azarenka won, what, like 11 straight games against Sharapova to finish off that match? Yes. Something like that. So that was not great, but um, not great for entertainment value anyway. When before, I think, the US Open final we had this year on the women's side was the first three-set final there since, like, 96. Right. So track record in New York doesn't speak to that being great either. But once again, I mean, this question is all sort of about, you know, showing your work, like you said. We don't know. Right. It could be the French. If you get, like, Serena as a rink at the French, that could be interesting. Well, here's my question to you, Ben. Like, when you talk about, in terms of, like, because even just saying, like, what is the best slam final mm-hmm. is already, you know, uh, dicey because you have to decide what one considers the best. Right. right? Are we talking totally technical? subjective. Yeah, totally subjective. Because you were talking about technical tennis or we talking about, you know, and, and the thing that kind of jumped out to me was like, in terms of choosing the slams the way that I did, like, I enjoy matches where there's an element of suspense. In other words, it's not a foregone conclusion. If it's, oh, a, yeah. if, if, if it's a foregone conclusion or I already kind of think I know what's going to happen, even if it's a five set match, even if it's a six hour epic, even if it's like whatever... I just kind of, I check out a little bit because I, I just don't have that intensity as I'm watching it. Right. And, that, as, and that's why that's why I think so many people anointed that Federer-Nadal-Wimbledon final as the greatest ever. Because mm-hmm. there was that surprise, quote-unquote, winner. Because, I mean, Federer was the favorite. Right. Federer had won all the previous matches. And you did feel like something happened because of that result. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I feel like with Wimbledon... For the men, it does it does kind of have because of the surface. I don't maybe I don't know maybe the roof maybe because of the weather all these sorts of things. Like there is a little bit of the unpredictability about it, and and any one of those f- top four guys can win it. I genuinely think that. I'd be surprised to see Nadal win Wimbledon next year for sure, but just because right. But he's proven happened. that he can. Yeah, win no, it. he has. Like if if you know, and so if the draw breaks a certain way or or whatever. But yeah, I mean we'll see by that time. But. Any four of those guys can win it. You don't really feel that's the case of the French. Uh, Murray is never, just not going to win the French so long as those three guys are ahead of him. Right. Um, and, Nadal, and you feel like Federer's already sort of punched his French card and isn't going to really make the big... kill himself to try to win that tournament right. again. Right. He's going to. Unless the draw really opens up for him. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, you have a little bit more of like kind of like any four of these guys could win at the US Open and at the Aussie. But I, I agree with your uh, argument on the Aussie. It's that it's just too slow. Yeah. So it, but yeah. So it's. And tough. those are personal preferences too. I mean, yeah, I was, like absolutely. Slow tennis, but I'm not. I always like the Wimbledon for just watching tennis. At least modern day Wimbledon, not necessarily you know Krychek Sampras Wimbledon, but <laughs> this Wimbledon I like. Mm-hmm. Next question comes from Matthew Neger, which uh, says I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. Sorry, Matthew. He says, "What effect will global warming have?" 
on the international sport of tennis. Only half tongue-in-cheek, he says. Mm-hmm. So, Courtney, as the oceans rise and whatnot, what will be the effect? I think the biggest thing is that you're just going to need more roofs. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the one thing that I've definitely noticed over the last like three years, uh, in particular, since I've been traveling more, like to be on site at tennis at tennis events, it's get they're getting cooler. They're, the summers are or in spring times are not like I remember back in like 2009 when I first started kind of traveling to events outside of the states. Like they, I just remember them being so hot, like really really hot. And it just over time it hasn't, I haven't been seeing it's gone down. Yeah, I totally agree. Washington cooler. used to be so much hotter than it was for our. Mm-hmm. I think we did move a week in the calendar also, but it used to be over a hundred routinely. Mm-hmm. And now that's not the issue. The issue is rain. Right. Indian Wells used to be much hotter when we first went to where it is now, and I've seen it in Rome over the last few years. Um, Wimbledon. It's just it's gone from really hot, and I don't know. Maybe that's like too small of a sample size. But over the course of three years, like for the most part, it feels like the temperatures have been dropping, and it feels like rain is just more of an issue. So that's the, that's the thing that jumps out to me uh, is just that we, you know, we need roofs, which for the most part, everybody's getting but the U.S. Open. And that's the U.S. Open's just never going to get one. So that's just why that tournament is just going to constantly be insane. Now, will there come a time potentially if warming, it actually, if the issue actually becomes heat at some point where it beca- where Indian Wells day matches become unplayable forever? I mean, theoretically. Yeah. Right? But... Indian Wells never gets as hot as like what the Aussie used to be. That's true. Right? Because at least in Indian Wells, it's an arid, it's a very dry heat. No, agreed. So, you know, it, whereas like, I just remember watching, and obviously I had never been there at the time, but watching the Australian Open like 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and it just looked, and maybe part of that was because of the surface that they were using where you could literally see like shoes melting on it. Oh yeah, that green stuff was gross. It was gross. But it just looked oppressive. And then obviously you and I have been there, Ben, it's so incredibly humid that you really can't breathe. Like yeah. it's, you know, when it becomes hard, I can't imagine sometimes those players doing what they do on that stuff. Yeah. So maybe maybe eventually, this is obviously, we don't know exactly what the timetable is going to be for unbearable heat at these tournaments. But if climate did change, I think... The tours would have to adjust to that. Although, obviously, if cities are underwater and stuff, tennis is probably an afterthought. Probably. But then also, if again, though, with the roof. If you have a roof, then heat's not an issue either. Right. That's why there are roofs in Australia. It wasn't ever because of rain. Yeah, more roofed outer courts and yeah. stuff. I mean, you're not going to be able to... If you have a... If somehow there's like a wet season in Australia and it rains all the time in January in the future, uh, it seems unlikely. But if it happened, you're not going to need... You're not going to survive with just a roof over labor... And I guess they have one also on uh, high sense. You need one, you know, you need probably 10 indoor courts or something. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is the way of the future, but hopefully we don't get there for a while. Agreed. Alex Davis asks us, will Andy Murray reach number one ranking at some point in 2013? Courtney? You could. <laughs> Good answer. I mean, yeah, I mean, he could, you know, like, it's just really hard to know. I mean, because he is a guy who, look, it's not out of the question that he could win three slams next year. Three seems like a lot, but it's, it's, it's not it's out of the question. He can no. win the Aussie. He can win Wimbledon and he can win the U.S. Open. I could totally see Murray doing something, getting to number one. He already has U.S. Open points. Right. We're just talking about at some point, not finishing the year number one. Right. So just using this question on like the absolutely... The Red Vonska version of I hope I get there if only for a week. Yeah. Murray can win the Australian Open. I don't think anybody thinks that's impossible. 
Right. You go on to win one of Indianapolis or Miami and get a deep round at the other one, or win both. I mean, not both. Like, both again seems unlikely, but do yeah, you but get a lot of points win. there. Then go win Queens and Wimbledon, and he might be there already at that point. Could be. Yeah, especially if he has a strong clay run where he makes like the quarters and semis of every, you know, major clay tournament. So he get, picks up some points there. I mean, he and although can... not massive, he has Olympic points, too. Yeah. And Shanghai final. So, I mean, there are points in the background from the end of last year. Yes. But uh, but yeah, I mean, he absolutely can, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, uh, outside of if if Rafael Nadal, I mean, that's stupid to say if Rafa wasn't injured, because if he was injured, then who's to say that Murray did what he was able to do this year? You know, mm-hmm. there's always that going to be that argument. But, you know, the two big storylines on the ATP as we kick off the 2013 season are Rafa and Andy. You know, what, you know, was, is 2012 the jumping off point for Murray where he does even better than he did this year? Or is it going to be stasis? Is it just going to be status quo? Like he's going to, you know, kind of do the same thing where he makes semifinals and he maybe wins one slam and, you know, all that. But he's still kind of like the fourth guy. Right. Or is it really going to be like, you know, kind of turning everything around? So uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet against him getting to number one. Yeah. And a lot depends on Federer. If Federer suddenly yes. becomes very old, yes. apparently, this year, which is totally possible. I mean, he had, you know, lingering back things this year. If those suddenly become inhibited for him, that helps Murray. And And Fed won't be in Miami. Right. But at the same time, he does have final points to defend there. So it's not like he's going to pick up a bunch in Miami. So he needs to to do well in both Miami and Indian Wells, and he wants to do well in Indian Wells. He says that he's he, that's why he's skipping, I think, the Middle East swing mm-hmm. and going straight into Indian Wells um, because he actually knows that he needs to do better there than whatever making the finals of Doha or Dubai or something. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I feel like more players would probably benefit from skipping the Middle East. Yeah, which is such a cash grab, but yeah. you can't hate on them for that, I guess. You can't hate on them, but you just kind of feel like. You know, let leave the Middle East to like Tipsarovich and Sanga. Yeah. You know, although you know, Tipsarovich and Sanga aren't going to get the appearance fees that you know a Murray also, or a Djokovic get. Also true. Underscore Super Tiebreak asks us your thoughts on the Sam Stoser Ova video. Personally, I thought it was awesome and catchy. Hashtag Ova. Courtney, what did you think on the "You Can't Stop Our Aussie Sam Stosa? video i it was catchy it was really well made it was really good production value but doesn't it isn't it just i don't know i couldn't help but feel a bit embarrassed about it like for who for sam (laughs) because it's so not true (laughs) like like she has like a horrible record against anyone with an ova like in the top 20 like it like the players that she would actually play like she she's like maria sharapova owns her Kvitova, like all of them, like Petrova, like they all kind of own her. So like, isn't it really, you know, it's, 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 you know, if you're going to make an argument like that, if you're going to like make like a video like that, I kind of feel like you need to be like dead to right, right? Like you need to like totally own the issue and have the numbers. And it's just kind of like, no, not really. (laughs) I, I, I totally agree with you that Sam Sosa does not own the Ovas. And so any of them could beat her. Um, or not any. I mean, it's not like, you know, Regina Kulikova is going to beat her. Or <laughs> right. But all the same, I thought it was awesome. Because <laughs> it's like wildly jingoistic and like national pride <laughs> and stuff. Which is, which women's tennis should be happy to have. People who are motivated to write these songs. 
and make these ridiculous videos about Sam Stoser, you know, being this, you know, conquering hero of Australia, which everyone who's seen her play the Australian Open knows is not the case when she's there. So I just like I just like the sentiment that's behind it, the sort of, you know, come on Samus of it all. And so I thought it was great. And I and I don't really and people said like, oh, you know, she's losing record. That part that part's valid. Fine. But you know, people said like, oh, you know, this one's not even in the tournament this year. It's like who cares? I mean it's yeah, just no. a fun video. Yeah, no, that that yeah. No, I think I just think that it got to the point where it really felt like like a Saturday Night Live sketch. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, but I don't, you know what I, don't I mean? Mind like, that. so, which isn't a bad thing, but it just felt like it was a bit, it was almost like, wait, are you making fun of Sam? Because now <laughs> I just feel like you're making fun of Sam. <laughs> and then at the end, it says, like, oh, if Guy to Sofa beats her, that's okay. Right, right. It's like, oh. but yeah. yeah. No, but I, I just thought it was fun. And I'm just a big fan of the tennis genre music in general. Like, there's not enough, I think, original tennis songs. Like, Serena rapped, obviously, we know, and I thought that was great. There's that terrible, terrible Baby Woes song. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You know, Baby Woes, you know, say you got some haters, hope you choke on now and laters. Yeah. That one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like that. I like that people, I like tennis, obviously, so, obviously, and as people know, I like Eurovision, so I'm a fan of ridiculous songwriting. So when the two things combine, it's all good for me. See, I mean, I like my emo, indie you know, either like Riot Girl based tunes or my, you know, Boney Vare like navel gazing singer songwriter. If some enterprising Boney Vare like spirit wants to like sit down and write a depressing song about how much like Sam Stozer doesn't play well when she's in Australia and will likely lose to a moth, like I could get behind that. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's just not this the the weird like i said like you know our musical tastes differ so yeah well that well, that part's definitely true although i did hear reports after <laughs> we talked about her uh, recently that you were you were seen and heard dancing to kesha i was point. it was embarrassing my friends threw this great end of the world party last week where it was fun like they rented out a bar and and so it was me and my one of my best friends like on the dance floor dancing and i was dancing and i looked up at the like video screen and it was Kesha and it, I was like, Oh no. Oh yes. Oh no. Oh so yeah. That, ha- that did happen. That Kesha, did. Kesha's a pioneer of the end of the world genre of music. It's a big theme in her songwriting. Well, but like my best friend who's gay, like leaned over and he's like, if the last thing that I hear on this earth is this song, like just seriously, just shoot me now. Like, I don't want to die. Like, because the world eats me up. Like, this is not okay. So you know, she's not, she, she may not be the gay idol that I thought she once was. Well, you know, Kesha, for all we know, prevented the apocalypse herself. True. Through her power of song. Maybe I'm, that song did save the world. I'm convinced it was that Nickelback's behind it, but that's just me. Yeah, well, enough about that. <laughs> it's time for another installment of Take a Number, our surprisingly popular segment where we take a number between one and a hundred and talk about the player who corresponds to that number in the ATP and WTA rankings. The people love this, Courtney. It's they can't weird. get enough numbers. I feel like we need to like get, like this segment has to have its own jingle. It really it, does. Like it's become a thing. It's outgrown us really. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll have to talk to Cassius people about that. Oh my word. So here we go. Taking it between one and a hundred and number is... Uh, it's okay. I have some problems with random.org. I don't always, I think it anyway. Number's 94. 
94. Okay. 94. Another high number. People say they like the high numbers, so. They do. You're getting what you want, people. Exactly. You want to go first? I'm hoping yours is better than mine, so why don't you go first? Okay. Number 94 is, at this point, I'm pretty sure she is Hungary's finest. Oh, no, she's not, because she's been outpaced. But uh, Melinda Sink. Okay. You can do Melinda Sink. She's had some, she's had some big results occasionally. Occasionally. I know who she is, which is crucial. It's helpful. How about you? And number, uh, Melinda's dance partner uh, comes from a country that's a little to the west of Hungary. He is from Ljubljana. He is one of the many Slovene players rising up to the middle parts of the ranks. And his name is Blaz Kavcic. Yes, Blaz. Great name. Is it, is it Blaz or is it Blaze? I always just want to say it's Blaze because that's cool. I think both are cool. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of that, did you know, I'm sure you did not know, I'm guessing you did not know, that Blaz Kavcic's coach is also named Blaz? Shut up. Blaz Kavcic is coached by someone named Blaz Troupe. Blaze Troop? Blaze Troop. I don't know. We have to, we'll come up with some nicknames for these people later. Okay. We'll start with, I don't know, which one is more exciting to you right off the bat? You can do Melinda Sink. Oh, let's do Melinda. Don't mind. Okay, so Melinda Sink is 30, 30 years old. She's uh, Hungarian. She's no longer Hungary's finest. I do believe that Tamea Babos yeah. is now ranked ahead of her. I'm not sure if she was ever, or she wasn't, like, because Greta Arn was also around there. Oh, yes, Greta Arn. Because for a while, I, Agnes Chave obviously was. And then when Chave probably dropped off, Greta Arn had that weird year where she won Auckland. Yeah, Chave's a sad story there. Yeah, talk about a player that you're just like, oh man, like, you know who's a player that could follow the Agnes Chave um, uh, 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 trajectory, unfortunately? Who's that? Kaya Kanepi. Yeah. She's so fragile. That's true, She's she so is. so fragile. It's just like, you're so good. But anyways, we're not here to talk about Kaya, shockingly. Um but yes, so so she's thirty years old, she's from Budapest, uh lives in the States. Um, she's a lefty. Mm-hmm. So that's always been something that's kept her I think, you know, kind of to ha- be a bit unpredictable on court. And she's good. Like I've seen her God, who was it that she beat um, She okay, I know who it was. Okay. It was at the twenty ten Wimbledon. She beat Sam Stowe's for the Ah, first that was round. the one, yes, because I was sitting courtside for that. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. Zoom out like, a little bit. She beat Sam Sosa on grass. So. Like blew past her. Like yeah. it wasn't not, it was not close. And yeah. it was, I just remember sitting in that match. It was like freezing. I remember it was really windy too. And it was on an outer court and uh, it just, it was over in a blink. And it was like, bye yeah. Sam. And Sam just made the French Open final. She was like, all eyes were on her. Or some eyes were on her. Yes. Most eyes that had ever been on her were on her. And she lost pretty badly. Mind you, in that tournament at the Aussie Open, uh, or sorry, at the, the at Wimbledon, uh, Melinda Sink was the lowest ranked player in the tournament. Yeah, she was in like a protected ranking, wasn't she? Yeah, she was ranked uh, number two oh two hundred something. Two sixty two. Wow. Yeah. And Sam was the tenth seed. <laughs> she beat her six three six four. Oh, Sam. Oh, she made the third round, and then she okay. beat uh, Yakimova. Okay. And then she lost to Peng Shui. Okay. So that was in twenty eleven. Okay. Melinda Zink, I feel like, is somebody who I've, I always see when I'm at tournaments, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. As someone who I saw, I didn't always recognize her right away, but once I realized who it was, there were points where I was like, everywhere I went, especially this year in Washington for some reason, 
just sort of like hung out right outside the near the door of the media area. Mm-hmm. Just like everywhere I went, I saw Melinda Zink like constantly. She was just sort of you know. She's just a name that's constantly in the draw. Like it, and I don't. I mean, I guess like if she's ranked ninety four, she's going through qualifying for a lot of tournaments. But obviously, that's enough to get her direct into to uh, slams, and she's she's good enough to you know win. Slam, like not slams, but a match. Well, I was, I was gonna say, hey, <laughs> Melinda Zink probably not good enough to win. Probably slams. not good enough to be. I hate to break it to her, yeah. but but yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know. Um, so yeah, Melinda, I, there's an article about um, written by her coach, who does is sometimes contributor actually to the New York Times Straight Says blog, mm. and Craig Shanessy, Craig O'Shanessy. He um, was working with her son at Wimbledon. And she played against Serena there in the second round this year, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about how he like prepped her for that match. Like, coaching against Serena, I guess, was mainly the premise of it. Mm-hmm. But Melinda was obviously a supporting character in this piece, so <laughs> we can try to find a link for that. Yeah. But somewhere. Um, so, yeah, that's Melinda. She, uh... One of these... But, like, she's... Okay, like, she's made the third round of the French Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. It's impressive. And for the second who's... round at the Aussie twice. So, I mean, she's like, and that's why you know the name. Like, you know what I mean? For someone whose highest ranking, her career high ranking is 78. Mm-hmm. Um, These seem like absolute, like, textbook journey woman stats. Yeah. Let's think. Totally, that's what she is. Right. I mean, I've seen, we, I saw her beat Sam Sosa there. I've also seen, I know I've seen her lose to Madison Brangle. Mm-hmm. At the Washington tournament a couple years ago. So, you know, up and down, but still always kind of hanging around and keeping her name in draws. Right. It's Melinda Zink. Melinda Zink. 94. And then Blaz Kavchich. What I was thinking about for Blaz, I'm pretty sure Blaz got a wild card into Wimbledon this year. Mm-hmm. Or at least some Slovenian. Really? Maybe, no, it was some Slovenian guy. Was it not him? Who's the, who's the other Slovenian person? Like, no, not Luka Grigorch. Who's the, is there a third one? Oh, it was Zemlia. Never mind. Yeah. Um, Zemlia. That completely destroys my point. But anyway, some Slovenian guy got a wild card, so maybe Blaz will eventually, too. Yeah. Blaz apparently played in the Olympics, according to the most recent photo of him on his ATP page. Okay. Good for him. Has a career-high ranking of 68, which he got this August, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. He made $213,000 in prize money this year, which is pretty good. Mm-hmm. He looks like someone sort of famous. I'm not exactly sure who. I don't know. Sort of yeah, staring the only, at him, Yeah, so. the only live match I've ever seen of his... I think was he played Juan Martin Del Potro in the French Open in 2010, and it was a match that was out in not the bull ring, but this uh, this other court. I forget what number the court is. Maybe court nine. Okay. That's like it's the one that's like right next to maybe court ten, and there's a walkway in the middle. And so if you stand on the walkway, you can look down on both courts. And right, it's really okay. cool. Like you're like literally right on top of the court. It's really, really cool. It's awesome. It's my favorite spot uh, uh, at Roland Garros. And it was like a totally entertaining match. I'm almost positive that better be him. I'm just going to Google that. But it was like a really, really entertaining match. He was like really, you know, for I think a set and a half, I was like, this guy's like good. Like, I don't know why I hadn't heard of him or why he doesn't get better results. But again, as we always know, a lot of that just has to do with uh, consistency. You can be yeah, really, yeah. really good for like, you know, a little while, but can you do it for 365 days? Generally speaking, probably not. It's interesting. He played like all challengers in the fall. He went went down to the South American clay court swing, which would lead one to believe that he's a clay quarter. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he didn't play any of the Asian stuff at all. So it's interesting schedule management by him there, especially for somebody who had been, you know, in the top 70 when he was probably thinking of his fall schedule mm-hmm. around uh, August or so. 
He beat Leighton Hewitt. Oh, this is what it was. I just, I saw part of this match. He beat Leighton Hewitt at the French Open in the first round this year. Um, after he would have gotten a wild card in, mm. I remember thinking like, "Great use of wild card there." <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe um, he got a wild card in there too. Actually, no, never mind. He definitely didn't. But he was like one of the lowest, lowest. He was outside the top hundred at that point. Mm-hmm. Got and beat Hewitt at the French Open. It was a low point in Hewitt's year, I think. Mm. Yeah. So that is, but he's clearly something a clay quarter. Yeah. One interesting thing about sort of a different tangent for Blaz Kavchich. I see on his profile they rank they link everyone to blazkavchich.com. Uh-huh. What do we think about and he's also on Twitter actually. I think I actually follow Blazkavich on Twitter. I think I, I do follow, too, yeah. I think I follow almost everybody. Um who has a Twitter and is a tennis player who's ever in big tournaments. Mm-hmm. What do we think? Do you think that all tennis players need their own websites? Well, have you clicked on that? Yes. Did you get the 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 weird 404 page? Yeah, but then I fixed that ATP error and went to blazcapture.com myself. But can we talk about the the 404 error that just came up? Not great. It's like a ball. In case you guys haven't don't know, go to the ATP website, go to Blazkowicz's profile and click on www.blazcapture.com. Mm-hmm. And it's this graphic of a tennis ball going out and on the tennis ball it says 404 and it says, "We're sorry, the page you are looking for is out of the range of pages available on our site. Please try a second serve." Or visit one of our popular pages. That's the cheesiest thing I've ever seen on the ATP website. <laughs> like, somebody sat down and made this graphic. Like, they didn't even just put up, like, a 404 error that, like, you normally get. Yeah, a lot of websites have these cutesy 404 errors now. Like, the fail whale stuff. Yeah, the know. fail whale, yeah. Anyways, but, sorry, you were saying. No, I wasn't really saying anything. Oh, about but... him having a, his own site? Yeah, do we think that players who are of the... At, players at all, first of all... And secondly, players of Vlad's Kavchich is sort of tier need their own websites. Is this necessary for the world? I think so. I mean, I, I think that no matter what, like, you mean, like, just even having something so simple as, like, these are the tournaments I'll be playing. Like, Blas has fans? Friends? Fans? He, he might be big in Slovenia for all we know. He could be. He could be. He's a pretty decent tweeter, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's good. He... Blaz, anyway, if you're wondering what his schedule will be like, he's playing Sydney and Chennai, according mm-hmm. to his website. Or Chennai and Sydney, I guess, in that order. <laughs> I always like when webs- when, 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 when player sites have this. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a box on the front page of his website called uh, ATP Rankings. Yeah. And it goes, number one, Novak Djokovic, two, Federer, three, Murray, four, Nadal, five, Ferrer, 94, Kavchich. Yep. <laughs> okay. Right in that conversation with those five guys. I'm just intrigued. Do you think, do you, how much do you go to, I feel like you go to player websites more than I do. I almost never... Yeah, I do, just because a lot of times that's where all their updated schedule information is. I think that, in particular, uh, well, both the ATP and WTA are not great about putting forth, like, the schedule, the player schedule, like, what tournaments they're expected to play. They both could be a lot better at that. I don't understand, like, why they don't do that. I mean, I guess I do understand that, because sometimes, like... WTA has it in the news and net cords thing. Yes, They have, like, the next three tournaments or so for the person. Right. But... I think it's just there's entry list stuff has always been very obfuscated. For yeah, reasons. because it's I, never always fi- sort of escaped me. Because it's never final. Yeah. Until you know uh, the the sign in is closed. So I guess I understand it, but I mean, if if a player ha- has like at least committed in some level, like it seems to me, you would put it on there. But the players do put that information on their sites, so that's where it's I just feel like for some of them it has to be a fair amount of you know work. I don't know how much traffic BlazCaptures.com gets. That's what I'm getting at, I guess. And he clearly has some sort of webmaster here because it's a pretty nice-looking site that's mm-hmm. relatively frequently updated. Just I don't I don't know if it winds up being worth it for him. That's fair. To maintain BlazCaptures.com. That's fair. 
Oh, it's Blage. Blage? There's a, little, there's a little thing over the, uh, the little thing on the Z. Mm. Makes it like an H kind of thing. So Blage. Blage. Or I don't know if it's, we could Blage. I think it's Blage. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure we have some Serbian listener who can probably lighten us on this. True. So that was Blaz, Blaz, um, and Melinda Sink. Who it was a fairly Blaze number, but you know it was. It. One other fact about Melinda Sink, and which is why I always remember Melinda Sink. Okay. Is that when I first saw her name for a while, I thought that the C Z was pronounced like Czechoslovakia. Okay. So I always in my head called her Melinda Chink, and then realized I couldn't do that. I could like I would all, but I was also because I didn't go to the site to like look it up. I'm like, but maybe that's like how her last name is pronounced. Like I don't know. Yeah, it could be. So I just avoided her name for so long, like saying it out loud, until finally I think maybe somewhere like I finally heard somebody else say it was Sink, and I was like, oh okay, good. Although Hungarian pronunciation is impossible, I'm mm-hmm. sure that Melinda sounds nothing like Melinda. Yeah. Because it's like Melinda. <laughs> so true. Yeah. So. Yeah. Those that's number ninety four on take a number. It's a high one, but, you know, I think we rose to the occasion. Yeah. Yeah. You're good. So now it's time for our show wrapping up little rant corner segment we do here. We just pick a topic to sort of opine on. And one that I've been thinking about more recently is a Twitter thing, which we talk about sometimes on the segment. Uh, We are both big tweeters, but we're not, you know, we have... We both have a fair number of followers on our various accounts, which we're very grateful for. Obviously. For that. Yes. And there's a lot of people with a lot more followers than us, and also a lot more, a lot with a lot fewer. Mm-hmm. And that generally, you know, tends to correspond roughly with, you know, how much people want to communicate with you on Twitter. Probably fair to say. Sure. But there seems to be more and more, and this was actually exposed to me first. I guess the first time I heard about this was when there was that scandal uncovered by Deadspin about Sarah Phillips. Yep. who was working for ESPN as a freelancer and had apparently been swindling all sorts of people. And Anyway, interesting article. Really confusing, but interesting articles about what she was doing. Came if you haven't read the piece, you really, really should. It's it's uh, it's great. It's uh, Yeah, and the whole scandal of it all was just so weird. Just, it was just really strange. Yeah. Really weird stuff. One of the things that was buried in that article, though, was about her buying Twitter followers at some point. She had, I think, at had like 66,000 or so, kind of throw out a number that's probably not right at all, Twitter followers at the time the article came out. And it showed that like, you know, she bought like 50,000 at some point from some source that sells Twitter followers. And I was just sort of like, I ne- it never occurred to me that Twitter followers could be bought or why people would do that. Or first of all, it didn't occur to me that you could do that. Then the motivation for someone to have sort of inflate their account didn't really come to me and now there are websites now that can sort of tell or detect how many fake twitter followers people have and some of the results can be sort of surprising mean, most people don't have any or you know have somewhere in single digits or like in the low teens and people who are more followed have more of them mm-hmm. just i think from spam bots and stuff and it's not a precise measurement at all but just seeing the numbers with some people some some very few players but some players clearly have numbers that look sort of juiced or inflated and then others don't it's just it isn't interesting you don't know how these things happen but you sort of look at it and think you know why why is this necessary why do people need to see this as a status symbol or a measure of their worth in the world or however you want to phrase it i mean just not money well spent if you look back in like 20 years and it's like wow you know i could have 
taking a vacation somewhere, but instead I got myself, you know, 5,000 Twitter followers. <laughs> was that really, is that really worth it at all? Yeah. I don't know the prices. I'm not exactly sure how affordable it is, but it doesn't seem like money well spent at all. It's just sort of sad. But you can see why, can't you? I mean, like why you do it. I mean, I think that, you know, for, I know from me personally speaking, I mean, I've never done it, swear right. to God. Um, but like, I think that for a while, especially like when I was just, you know, kind of a lowly blogger with a tiny website, you know, just kind of staking out my own corner of the internet universe. Like, I'm not sure a lot of people read my blog, but people did follow me a lot on Twitter. And I think that like industry people probably saw that and was like, who the heck is this weird random person who like has like more followers than X person or that person or like whatever. And so that like piques their curiosity and then like they follow you and then like whatever, like you become like somebody that people like, you know, yeah, follow or talk about or know as a, as a Twitter presence. And then nowadays, like with like websites like clout, which is a website that like basically gives you a Mm -hmm. clout score given like, your followers, not just, like, how many, but, like, how, like, who your followers are, like, and stuff like that. Like, somebody, like, when you check into a hotel, for example, like, can look up your clout score. And if you have a big clout score, like, they might, like, upgrade you or give you even better customer service. Do people so do that? that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In Vegas, apparently, it happens a lot. Vegas huh. and L.A. And they'll, like, look you up, and then they'll find your clout score, and then they'll, like, treat you really well in hopes that you tweet, like, had a great time at the Palm, like, incredible, like, service, like, blah, 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 blah. So it's a way for them to kind of – because the whole question about Twitter followers is, like, how do you monetize that? Like, why the hell do people care, right? Like, who cares how many followers somebody has or doesn't have? And that's kind of beginning to be how – like, that's how clout's trying to do it. You know, obviously, like, Kim Kardashian gets paid to tweet because of how many – uh, followers she has so that's how you monetize it that way like whatever but i i don't i just google this by the way i don't want to incentivize people to do this but apparently you get a thousand twitter followers according to this person that popped up for only 14 dollars. see you can it can it can happen and huh. so like i think personally that like if you look I mean, you and i were talking about this a little before ben like generally speaking like people at least that i follow or that i've seen in the twitter tennis twitter universe their follower counts kind of look right. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'm not talking about athletes, but, like, just bloggers, writers, fans, like, whatever. Like, there are very few people, like, a very small handful of people where that, like, raised the red flag. Otherwise, everybody yeah. else is like, no, that sounds about right. Like, yeah, that's about right. Like, that's about, like, 1,500 followers. That's about 4,000. Yeah, like, you know, yes, this person should have 10,000 followers or, like... Or even yeah. higher. This person, if it's a player, should have about 100,000. Right. Know, like, so this is, like, decidedly low and... You know, with players, it's always harder to kind of gauge. But just so people know, I mean, there are programs that can kind of give people an idea as to whether or not you bought your followers or not. Yeah. No, that, and, that's, and I heard about the Sarah Phillips thing, and I knew there was – I had read something about that, and it wasn't really anything I'd ever thought of. But then I saw someone who obviously go and end on this on the show whose Twitter account just looked like way higher than I remembered it being or just way higher than it made sense. And I, you know, typed their name into this thing and came up, you know, being like – 70% fake followers. I was just, I was just like, really? Because somebody, you know, people, most people on the tennis world on Twitter, I get along with fine. I was just sort of like, you know, why? Yeah, what's the point? It's, like, isn't there more pride in, like, organically growing, to the extent that you care what your follower count is, like, organically growing it by providing interesting content or being funny or, like, whatever? Like, why would you, why would you buy followers? 
Yeah, it just sort of defeats the point. It of, really you know. does. Like, you know, like, it doesn't even, it's like, a, it's not even like, you don't even get the sense of pride of knowing that, like, yeah, like, 5,000 people, like, have read the thing that I just tweeted. It's like, no, because, like, 3,000 of those are fake spam bots. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't even get, like, to pat yourself on the back. I don't know. It's weird. Indeed, it is weird. And it's just, it's just unnecessary. So maybe Twitter will figure out some way to purge all of it. That would be controversial if they ever did that. They'd probably get sued by the fake sellers or something ridiculous. No, not even that. It's not in their It's not in their interest. The fake That's sellers true. create fake accounts, so then they could boost Twitter's user count. That's true. And also, I guess people like saying Twitter as a metric, you know. Mm-hmm. If someone's a PR person for... Nadal, Nadal is the most followed person on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's the most followers. Anyway, he... And, they, and I don't know, they're trying to pitch him to a company or something to say, oh, well, he has 3.3 million Twitter followers, or however many it is, and that's probably more than that, actually. Mm-hmm. You should definitely get with him because of that. It is, you know, a selling point for that, I guess. They can get more money, so... Yeah, to the extent that people are valued. Like, I mean, if he tweets about Bacardi, 3.3 million people, I mean, that's a commercial for Bacardi, right? And, right. Um, and at least know, Bacardi believes there are 3.3 million people reading that. Right. Whether Even it's the number of people who actually, I mean, just everybody's counts. Like people, a lot of people who follow you don't check Twitter that often. Most right. tweets you actually send. I wonder if the numbers on this actually are. Like what percentage people actually see any given tweet you send. Right. Because people, would be people don't check that much. It's probably much lower. It's probably like 10% of your followers. Right. Because everybody's got to be online at the same time. Yeah. But interesting news reported by Darren Ravel. Mm-hmm. That Maria yes. Sharapova will be joining Twitter in the new year. So she's going to blow the Twitter numbers, the tennis Twitter numbers out of the water, right? Now, you were saying earlier you expect her to be number one, definitely. Yeah. In, she'll be number one. I'd say she's number one if, if it's the Australia swing. Well, I mean, she'll be number one by, like, Wimbledon for sure. But I think that it will be really Wow. Great. Oh, yeah, dude. Okay. Sharapova's appeal is, like, like universal. Okay. Like, no, she's definitely a crossover person. That yeah, like know. all of Asia, like they would, they'll love her, like, and they'll 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 get on her bandwagon, and you know, it just depends on how she uses it. If it's just going to be, I mean, because I think that she's been really good on Facebook. She's a very good Facebooker. I've been the NCR tennis uh, Facebook page follows tennis player Facebook page, which I've never really done before. This and uh, yeah, she's good at it. She tweets a lot of photos of herself being taller than things you would expect her to be taller than, like uh, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, there's or, a, there's a sense of humor about what she's doing, and it's it's actually kind of I think softened her a little bit. Endearing dorkiness to exactly it. because she's still her, like she's still her brand of like, you know, like doing something crazy fancy and kind of mildly complaining about it. Like she, her humble bragginess is still there. Agreed. So yeah, so that'll be interesting <laughs> to see, and hopefully, I, I assume that you know maybe she'll start out with a gift to herself of you know a million followers, but I kind of doubt it. We don't know. You know, just don't know what people are doing now, which is sort of what I don't like about it, why it's a rant. Right. You should be able to, the numbers should be more trustable. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a useless. So if I'm going to pontificate on this, I'll say, don't do it, people. Just, you know, keep the, keep the Twitter sphere honest. Yeah. Even if I did tell you that it's only $14 and you're probably all, you know. Well, just know that if anybody, yeah, just know that if anybody wants to, they can figure out if you're a fraud or not. Yeah. And it like, will, and knowing yeah. that is much worse than seeing you having a thousand fewer followers. Right. There are many, many programs that will run many sites where you can kind of debunk the fake follower stuff. So, All right, Courtney, that was mine. How about you? Would you have anything to rant about this week? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's somewhat related to Twitter as well, although it also applies to, like, websites and, like... And obviously this isn't anything new. It's just that, like, it's bothered me more so because, like, I don't really feel like nowadays... 
like the blogosphere or like the internet is as kind of wild wild west as it was like five years ago or five years ago before then in terms of like there not being any rules or you know anybody can do whatever and you know I think that that's that's it's less so now I think that there as time has gone on and as the, as the internet um, has become more familiar um, as a as a as a venue within which to exchange information, um, you know, obtain information, create content, absorb content, all sort of stuff. Like there actually are kind of unwritten rules and, and courtesies. And I think within the tennis universe that those rules are become almost less courtesy and almost really more kind of, you know, kind of, un, yeah, just rules because like it's so, our community is so small. Right. Like in terms of Twitter and the, the websites and blogs and tumblers and Facebook pages like they're, you know, compared to you take our sport and compare it to a lot of the other sports, like the amount of interaction between fans and bloggers and journalists and players and all that and industry people is like is a lot for like a very small community. So we kind of all somewhat know each other. Sure. So like it's a bit like still, I guess, disappointing to see like just like a lot of like stealing of information from different like basically a lack of like sourcing of information like on twitter on blogs on websites from big and small from whether it's like the little guy to like a big behemoth you know major website or something like that to like see information guy go up and not even a courtesy link to the source link to the source is probably the best situation um second to that would be at least naming the source mm-hmm you know, who reported it, who just shoot a link via this person, you know, all the sorts of things. And that includes like pictures, like, you know, you see pictures like go up on Twitter, you know, like, oh, this picture's hilarious and like not knowing, okay, did you take that picture or did somebody else? And to the extent that it wasn't you, then you should probably like give the other person credit. And it's, I don't know, it's just not as, as, as like kind of like carefree and free flowing anymore. And I think that it's just like such an easy courtesy to extend, um, to other people because you know nowadays we're all kind of standing on the shoulders of each other in terms of gra- grabbing information and it just also allows that like when you do break something when you do bring something original to the table then like we know that it was you and it wasn't like something that you took from somebody else and um right. you know and so like I definitely I mean I do my best to, to do that there are times where I'm just being lazy and absent-minded and I don't so I'm not even like being like standing on a soapbox and saying it but it just seems like it happens more and more and more where there's kind of almost like a lack of understanding that like, you know, you, you should want to source the other person because if there's something wrong with your information that you're getting, it absolves you. It's not, you know, it's not you, but it's like somebody else who said it or tweeted it or like whatever. And, Oh, that's a hoax or, Oh, there's a caveat for you to give. Exactly. If I was, I mean, something, obviously I don't have much reason to not trust this person, but I, there was a article by Darren Ravel just saying, you know, share posts on Twitter. So I pointed people to that article and said, from Darren Ravel, said, you know, Sherpa will be on Twitter in January. So instead of me just declaring it, which, right. and I do, you know, sometimes have stories that are mine first. Right. So it clarifies that this is not me trying to say this. And also, if it turns out not to be true, don't blame me. Yeah, let's go laugh at Ravel. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> as, as many are want to do. Yeah, so, people, people like that. Yeah, but not so, that, nothing, nothing against him, obviously, in this case whatsoever, right. or in yeah. any case, I don't really have anything against him. Right, exactly. You know, and so I think that that that's you know, and and plus nowadays, you know, we saw this, for example, 
um, like during the the Newtown stuff, the you know all the stuff about like the name of the 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 shooter and how it got confused and you know and a lot of that came because it was mis and everybody blamed the media. Like everybody's like, excuse you know, stupid CNN, like reporting stuff, like da da da. That information came directly from the cops. It was the cops that like misreported it to yeah. the media. So really, it's the cops. Like I don't really blame like CNN or any other news outlet for like disseminating the information when it came from that source. But at the same time, like nowadays, it seems like there's a lot of backlash against like media. Like, oh, you guys are supposed to like filter out the crap. Like you can't just repeat everything you hear. Well, that's not always possible. That's not always possible. I mean, I, I think there's a really interesting debate in that. I saw this go, like going back and forth between during the Newtown stuff between this guy who works for NPR, who that's his method of reporting is like just he just kind of retweets rumors or little bits of information and, and kind of crowdsources like, mm -hmm. hey, does anybody else has this been confirmed? Like whatever. But because of the way Twitter is, people like think that he's reporting that information so he was he got into it with another journalist like the guardian or something and she was telling him like it's your responsibility like it's our job like that's what the newsroom is for it's like we're supposed to filter that stuff and it's irresponsible of you to just like tweet like whatever and he's like no but that's how i you know it was interesting that's interesting i probably come down more on her side of that than his i'm guessing yes you can't just retweet any rumor you hear on twitter that's that is irresponsible i think Especially right there are lots of things that you know happen yeah no and i, I that that's where I came down on it too was more on her side but I understood because he was saying but this is my method I'm transparent about it like everybody knows this and it's like not everybody knows it though because if somebody hasn't followed you the whole time they don't know it and then they're right. following you and all of a sudden like tweets get retweeted by somebody else and they lose all context of yes. you and that can be dangerous yes um, and also on the CNN part with the Newtown stuff um, the way the networks phrase it more and more I think this is more of a TV issue than with a I guess we're both in sort of traditional print places that are now online for the most part but they will they with the newtown police you know say that the name of the guy they will not cnn will not necessarily say always you know cnn or espn is the main offender in this actually yeah will not always say uh cnn you know newtown police say that this is the name of the guy they will say cnn has learned that this is the name of you know the person it's like right. giving themselves unnecessary credit for doing nothing right um, and ESPN says, you know, we'll say sources and stuff to, uh, you know, make it opaque who actually got the story. Yeah, ESPN's horrible about it. I mean, if yeah. anybody follows like Awful Announcing or Richard Deitch or any of kind of the media watchdog Twitter accounts, like, you know how much ESPN has gotten in trouble with other reporters this year. From, like, I think my favorite one was, I think it was somebody, I don't know if he was like a Fox reporter or an SI reporter who was like, yo, ESPN, unless my, like, my, I'm pretty sure my mom didn't name my, name me sources, but, yeah. uh, you know, but, um, yeah, so I don't know. I just think that it's just like a general, not only is it like just considerate to just acknowledge that somebody else did the legwork. It's responsible in that it helps them and it also helps you yeah. because of these cases where they can get it wrong. Yeah. So don't, don't just, you know, don't cut, if there's like a smart kid next to you and you're copying off his test. Right. Maybe he'll start, maybe if he writes something wrong, you know, you don't want that also. You right. want to make it clear. Especially if he starts intentionally writing wrong things and feeding you bad stuff, like has happened to uh, the aforementioned Darren Ravel at some point. <laughs> yes, that story. Uh, that did yeah. happen. That did happen. But yes. No, I, I was going back to what you how you started this. Were you saying that the internet used to be more of a wild west, so this was more okay back then? It wasn't that it was okay. It was just that, that no one, it wasn't okay. It's never been okay. I mean, especially uh -huh. when it comes to, like, pictures and things like that. I know this when I was, like, a personal blogger. Like, honestly, did I, like, violate a copyright case 
yeah, like sometimes it's just straight up, you're not allowed to do that. You don't have the rights to do that. And I, when you have a smaller blog or website, or if you're only like, you only have 50 followers on Twitter, there is a little bit more of this sense of like, well, this is just my own private playground. Right. Like and, when I had a blog spot blog, I was taking photos from all the wires constantly. Right. That. Exactly. I was like, but that, yeah. Exactly. But then there comes a point, and I think this has been like a long-standing argument that I've always kind of made, that there comes a point where your level of influence within the sphere within which you operate becomes, reaches a certain threshold where you can't be it's not the wild, wild west anymore. Like you actually do have to kind of like buy into the community and in order to um, treat information responsibly, to not disseminate rumor, to not be just irresponsible in that way. And I know for myself, like I definitely am very conscious of the things that I retweet. I'm definitely, when I see rumors, I don't like to just retweet the rumor. I'm actually, okay. I'm like, I kind of lodge it in my head. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, try and work the channels to try and figure out if it's true or not and confirm the information. But and that's the filtering part. Like we right. are at a level where people do take what we see, what we tweet or retweet seriously. I mean, I think the whole RTs are not endorsements concept is, is stupid. Yeah. But or make needing to make that very clear. But you know, if there are rumors out there that all, all of a sudden a lot of people are tweeting, um, we'll definitely see them and look into them. But we don't always necessarily make ourselves, you know, an echo chamber. Right. When we don't know what we're doing. Like a good example is is the Djokovic cheese thing, the donkey cheese story, right? Okay. Like mm-hmm. you read some write-ups of that donkey cheese story, and it was just basically reporting that Novak Djokovic, like from different websites, Novak Djokovic has bought donkey cheese, right? And if you read other reports, it's the Daily Mail reports that, which is like who started the story. Yeah. Daily Mail reports that, da 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 Or if it's not the Daily Mail, at least it was like some other, like, like I know for SI, that's what we did. Like I don't know if I pointed to Daily Mail, but there was some website that is where I read it first, and I pointed to them. I was like, I'm not reporting this. I have no idea if it's true, but it's being reported that Novak Djokovic bought all the donkey cheese. So that when it was revealed that that was totally bullcrap, and that the main reporter who did who broke the story initially, like actually totally buried the buried the information that actually Djokovic hadn't. Yeah. Um. It was very easy for me to then go back and be like, well, that report was untrue. And, you know, and because the New York Times reports <laughs> that who did the legwork, you know, the New York Times reports that like Djokovic didn't buy the cheese. And, you know, and they contacted his, you know, they did all the work. I'm just kind of piecing all the things together. But at least I acknowledge what my role is in that. Like, I'm not like standing there being like, hey, I'm breaking this crazy story and it's nutty and everybody like pat me on the back. No. But anyway. Indeed. So that's that's a good thing to close on. We can pat each other on the back as we wrap up this show. Always, always. And wrap up, and wrap up our 2012 season. So it's been a wonderful... We started in like February, I think was our first show. So we've been yeah. pretty much a whole, whole year here with you guys. And it's been a fun ride. And we'll see you again on the flip side of the calendar, or on a different calendar. And thank you for listening and being patient with us. We know that we had a few kinks to, to work out in terms of, of regularity and stuff like that. But we appreciate... Uh, your loyalty and and uh, patronage in in many respects, and um, you know we'll try we'll try and be better next year. And uh, always trying to do better. Always trying to be better. That's the true, no? That is the true. <laughs> See you next time, people. Thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.